Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, October 24th, 2014. Now, this is one of those potpourri, stinking pot, no-themed episodes of Fighting for the Faith. Just kind of grabbing all the stuff I've been wanting to talk about and throwing it into a a big, heretical stew. (laughs) Mmm, sounds tasty. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you stop and slow down, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, to the Word of God to see if what they're saying actually squares, or if, well... They're instead scratching, itching ears and telling people things that are not in accord with sound doctrine. We live in a day uh, which was prophesied in Scripture it, that uh, there would come a day when people would not endure sound doctrine. They can't stand it. They don't like sound doctrine. They want to believe what they want to believe. And so what they do is they gather to themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear rather than telling them what they need to hear. The good news that Christ bled and died for our sins and that they need to repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. So anyway, let's talk about what we're going to do on our Friday episode here of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, yeah, like I said, we're, we're, there's no theme. This is, we, it used to be, I used to call these potpourri episodes. And then somebody emailed me and told me that potpourri, I think is French for stinking pot. Now I have no way of verifying that. I have never verified it. So if potpourri doesn't mean stinking pot, well then, you know, I've been misinformed, but, and I'm, I'm a victim, but anyway, (laughs) no, I'm not a victim, but anyway, uh, so today we're just, we're, we're grabbing, the leftovers and throwing it all into a mix. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of start off easy. we got a Terry Savelle Foy update. And uh, she's talking about this secret to success, the ability to engage in visualization. And, uh, and of course, what's weird about Terry is, is that this is a woman who believes that she hears directly from God. God tells her specifically what to do. She receives you know, visions and prophetic stuff like that. And yet at the same time, she describes her ministry as a ministry. And when she travels, she says she preaches. So, I mean, Terry Savelle Foy is one of these folks that um, in some senses, I actually feel bad for her. And what I mean by that is she grew up in the word of faith heresy. And so um, she doesn't, she really believes this is Christianity. And unfortunately it's not. Um, and so what's, what's sad is, is that, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday 
is that uh, the, the, the seeker-driven movement has been around long enough now that there is a whole host, I mean, just huge, vast army of people who've grown up in these seeker-driven churches, and they have no clue that that doesn't really reflect historic Christianity. They, and, and, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember Christianity prior to the rise of that movement. And so, you know, they've grown up in this and they, and they, you know, they have no experience of uh, being in churches where there's in-depth exegetical preaching and teaching solid, you know, confessions or creeds or things like that. No, I mean, they, they, they've grown up in this completely shallow kiddie pool uh, known as the, uh, seeker-driven movement, and they think that's normal Christianity. They think that's the norm, they, and they have no historical context to know that, you know, that uh, Christianity didn't look like that, sound like that, or, you know, feel like that, you know, for the first two millennia of its uh, existence, and what they're being fed, as shallow and vapid as it is, it's shallow and vapid on purpose. So anyway, you, you get what I'm saying. So you know, I feel bad for Terry Savelle Foy because she's grown up in this in this uh, word of faith heresy, and she really believes this is what Christianity is. And so, you know, it's it's kind of a mess. And we'll switch gears. We'll do a Joel Osteen update. We'll take a listen to his latest thing. And I think I'm going to play a little bit more than I normally do because he's talking about Joseph in this quote-unquote sermon. We'll take a break. When we come back from the break, we have a quick Mark Driscoll update. Um, and I think this is an important one. Uh, audio has surfaced on the internet of an announcement made by one of the elders at uh, Mars Hill Church this past Sunday regarding Mark Driscoll. And um, in the announcement, it not only was the announcement made to people that Driscoll had resigned, but another announcement was made. And the announcement was that the elders of Mars Hill Church had found in their investigation against Mark Driscoll that he was guilty of a habitual pattern of sin. I forget the exact uh, way they put it. We'll play the uh, soundbite for you. But what's interesting is is that this elder at Mars Hill Church basically said that by resigning, Mark Driscoll had circumvented the elder's uh, ability to rebuke him and f- uh, and basically opted out of uh, their disciplinary uh, program, which would have ultimately resulted in him being restored. So I think it's fascinating that uh, if this elder is to be believed, and I think he is, uh, Driscoll resigned before he could be disciplined. Because had he been disciplined, that would have been a ding against him. Plus, I think it would have been galling for him to be disciplined by the hand-selected, hand-chosen sycophants that he'd been putting on, you know, choosing as the elders of Mars Hill. So I think that's absolutely a fascinating development. We'll, we'll play that for you. And then we'll get to that piece that we didn't get to yesterday, uh, Lisa Bevered, uh, in her kind of half-truth regarding homosexuality, but the way she is teaching it is very, very duplicitous. And I've only seen that, that this tactic being used by mainline liberals, so it's kind of fascinating in that sense, too. And then to round out the program, we're going to end the program with some good sermons from uh, Mark Bestuel. And uh, you know we're going to have another Mark Bestuel twin spin. I want you to hear more of this guy's preaching. He, I just think he's fantastic. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're starting off with the Terry Savelle Foy update, that requires us to do this. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. 
That's our Terry Savelle Foy update music. I'm a Barbie girl. Now, so this is uh, Terry Savelle Foy from her video blog, and you know, which you can find at uh, YouTube. Uh, her talking about a secret employed by people to make them successful, and that secret is visualization. Yeah, interesting. But uh, here's Terry Savelle Foy to give us the details regarding this secret to success, if you would. Here we go. You know, it's interesting. I read lots of success books, listen to a lot of success CDs, a lot of faith-building material that I like to just continually be feeding myself. And I've noticed, especially, you know, reading books from successful people, like Dave Ramsey, he says, if you want to be successful, study successful people. You want to be rich, study rich people. You want to be skinny, study skinny people, right? Well, it's interesting how... When somebody succeeds in an area, it seems like everybody wants to know what's your secret. You know, like you lose 10 pounds, they want to know what's your secret. You get out of debt, they want to know what's your secret. Or you succeed in there, you make an amazing cake or pie and everybody wants to know what's your secret, (laughs) which no one's ever asked me that. But (laughs) (laughs) Me either. Always want to know what the secret is. Well, I have discovered a secret. Among successful people, the ones I read about, the ones I... A secret, a secret, hmm. I know, they all practice a secret that has enabled them to live their dreams. Did you hear me? They all practice a secret that has enabled them to live their dreams, to realize their dreams, and actually achieve them. The secret that all the successful people I study practice is simply the art of visualization. Hmm, hmm. Practice the art of visualization. That's the secret to success. Hmm. What is visualization? It's literally visualizing your future. It's seeing the invisible. Or you could say it's seeing what other people don't see. Some people call it seeing with the eye of faith. You know, you have physical eyes, but you have spiritual eyes too. And you see with the eye of faith. I'm absolutely convinced that in order to have something, you have to see with the eye of faith. Whoo, boy, this, I've heard similar uh, ways of speaking in like the new age movement. See yourself having it first in order before you can do something, you have to see yourself doing it first. So, you know, even people, professional athletes, musicians, Olympians, business owners, ministers, these people who, you know, that I've studied and read about, they all practice this art of visualization. So I want to challenge you to do the same thing, to begin seeing beyond where you're at today. It's like even the legendary golfer Jack Nicklaus, he said, before I ever hit a shot... He said, before I ever, even in practice, before I ever hit a shot, I have a very sharp, in-focus picture of it in my head first. Even in practice, before he even swings that club, he visualizes the outcome. You know, they've done this with people in basketball. 
They've done this with Olympic gymnasts, had them visualize their performance from beginning to end. And in most cases, they actually... Like a mental rehearsal. I don't have a problem with mental rehearsals, but seeing with the eye of faith, that's a little bit different than what you're describing here. Do exactly what they visualize. It's amazing how your spirit will go to work to produce the things that you put before your eyes, the things you put in your spirit. So... Note again... You go from mental rehearsal to your spirit's gonna, you know, hmm. I want to challenge you to do that, to see something. You know, that's what prompted me to write this book or come out with this notebook called Imagine Five Years From Now. Imagine five years from now. I want you to imagine five years from now is because you're acting as if it really were five years from now. Whatever that year is, you put that year on paper, put it in your head, and imagine your age five years from now. Now, what you do is you write, even if it's one dream, one goal, you write it down and you act as if it already happened. This- you act as if it already happened? What is that supposed to do? It comes from Mark eleven twenty three and 24. You act as if it's already happened. Mark eleven twenty three and 24. Hang on, let me look that up and... See if it teaches us in Mark 11, 23 and 24 that we need to project ourselves into the future and then act as if it's already happened. Well, here's what uh, Jesus says. All right. So, uh, by the way, let me back this up and put this in context. And, yeah, there's a little bit going on here. This is Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Um Okay, so here's what it says. Uh, Mark eleven twelve. on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So that's kind of the, 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 the setup here. And by the way, this is a, if you would, kind of a verbal, not verbal, uh, Physical, tangible parable. It's not verbal, but it's actually, you know, kind of played out in reality. This fig tree is parabolic. It's teaching us something regarding the religion of the Jews that doesn't bear any any fruit, right? So uh, verse 20 then, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... Uh, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. Notice it says what he says, not what he thinks. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. So, yeah, what's going on there is there's a lot more going on, but uh, what you have to ask for needs to, number one, be in accord with God's will. And this isn't some kind of magic visualization that Jesus is teaching here in this text. So we've got a major problem going on here. She's taking kind of mental rehearsals and you know, long-term strategic planning, kind of imagining where you need to be you know, five years from now and the steps you need to take to get there. There's nothing wrong with that, but she's... Taking Mark 11 out of context, you know, over-spiritualizing it, sticking something into it, and then saying, oh, this is how it is in your life. You just need to, and your spirit will follow suit. Yeah, this isn't what the Bible teaches.
In the book of Jeremiah, we see the Lord asking Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, what do you see? What do you see? He asked him a few verses later, Jeremiah, what do you see? That's because God was giving a vision. And so God, you know, God gave a vision to Jeremiah and in the vision asked, so what do you see? What do you see in this vision? And he wanted Jeremiah to, to you know, explain to him what he was seeing. Now, what if Jeremiah had said nothing? No, Jeremiah actually said, I see the branch of an almond tree. You know, it symbolizes alertness and growth and activity. He t- yeah, the, again, Jeremiah was receiving a prophetic vision at that time. There's no promise that you're going to receive a prophetic vision for your life five years from now. The Lord, what he saw. God knows what's there, but he needs to see that you see it. He needs to hear you speak it out of your mouth. So you have to have an image, a desire, something that you see that's invisible right now. You've got to allow yourself, give yourself permission to see it. Really? I got to give myself permission to see that? Oh, man. This Again, this is not what the Bible teaches. And it's really sad because Terry Savelle Foy really believes that this is Christianity. This is really what the Bible teaches. And the Bible doesn't teach this. This is some strange, bizarre, self-centered, self-focused, narcissistic doctrine that is mythology. It's not actually anchored in God's word. And if, if you were to actually go and look up these passages, you would realize that you know none of these passages are actually teaching what she's saying. I just want to ask you, what do you see five years from now? Do you see health in your body? If that's what it is, write it down. If you need to get pictures of yourself back when you were healthy, put a picture of you in there. Or if it's someone else that, you know, you, you say, hey, that's what I'm believing God for is perfect health in my body. Whatever it is, if it's to get out of debt and you say five years from now, I'm completely out of debt. Well, what is that debt amount? Write the specific number down. But you act as if it were five years from now. That's faith, isn't it? That's using your faith to call those things that be not as if they already were. <sighs> No, that's not faith. What are you trusting in? Whom are you trusting in? Where does God promise that if you do this, he's going to make these things come to pass? Uh, uh. So I want you to just follow these steps. If you don't have your copy of the Imagine Five Years From Now. Yeah, I, I, I sadly, I, I don't have my copy. And please don't send me one. I encourage you to get it. You can put pictures in here, and I've got samples on how to visualize. I've got illustrations in here of successful people who visualize, like Jim Carrey, Jeff Bezos, different people. And there's tips in here on how to practice this habit. Okay, enough. You you get the idea. It, uh, obviously, this is a this is a major problem, and this is not what Christianity teaches. Yeah, time for a Joel Osteen update. Sad as I can be, all by myself in an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. Shiny 
teeth and me. That's right. That's uh, Chip Skylark and our uh, Joel Osteen update music, Shiny Teeth and Me. Yeah, a little earworm, if you know what I mean. Anyway, what we're going to be listening to is <laughs> Joel Osteen's latest message entitled Finishing Grace. Finishing Grace. And uh, I'm glad, kind of, sort of, that uh, Joel Osteen has decided to become a grace preacher. <laughs> but I've never heard of fi- finishing grace. Yeah, it makes <laughs> What is finishing? Yeah, I, I don't know. But here's Joel Osteen to explain the concept. Here we go. Sinner in you. Well, God bless you. It's always a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you again for coming out today. I'd like to start with something funny. And this was sent to me from an attorney. I heard about these two men, the Pope and a lawyer. They died on the same day. St. Peter met them at the pearly gates, said, follow me, men. I'll take you to your homes. Peter first dropped the Pope off at this small wood frame house, just one bed and one desk. He then took the lawyer to this magnificent house. It was huge. Had a big swimming pool, a beautiful view out back. The lawyer was overwhelmed. He said, St. Peter, what did I do to manage to get this magnificent place when the Pope only got that small place? Peter said, we have dozens of Popes. You're the first lawyer. Hold up your Bible. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about finishing grace. (laughs) It's like, what? Finishing grace. <laughs> I cannot begin to tell you how many confessional documents I've read, uh, how many church fathers I've read, how many dogmatics texts and systematics texts I've read. And I have never heard of the category of theology known as finishing grace. Please explain. It doesn't take a lot of effort to start things. Start a diet, start school, start a family. Starting is easy. Okay, so ending is hard? Finishing is what can be difficult. Okay, I've finished lots of diets, started them too. I I don't think you want me to finish my family. Um, (laughs) I'd probably go to prison for that. You know, this is weird. Any young lady can have a baby, but it takes a mother to really raise that child. Any two people can get married, but it takes commitment to stick with it for the long haul. Yeah, but you're talking about finishing grace, so you don't want to finish a marriage, right? Again, just just, just doesn't make any sense. Even the metaphors and the things he's trying to do to explain what finishing grace is don't quite make sense. Anyone can have a dream, but it takes determination, perseverance, a made-up mind to see it come to pass. Yeah, just talk to Terry Savelle Foy, though. She's... She's got a you know a workbook you can work through. So vision yourself, visualize yourself five years from now, so that your spirit comes into alignment and things like that. You know, the question is not will you start, but will you finish? Will you finish the diet? Will you finish school? Will you finish raising your children? 
Too many people start off good. They have big dreams. They're excited about their future. But along the way, they have some setbacks. It's taken longer than they thought. Somebody didn't do what they said. And over time, they get discouraged. Think, well, what's the use? It's never going to work out. But God is called the author and the finisher of our faith. Yeah, perfecter, yeah. He's not only given you the grace to start, he's given you the grace to finish. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, not, not finish your race here on earth and die in the faith and, you know, that. No, 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 you know, to, to finish a diet, you know, to, <laughs> things of that nature. Oh, man. This is so miserably off topic from anything that the Bible says. And how does he get away with this? Just by ripping verses out of context and weaving it into his tapestry of sappy smiliness, you know? When you're tempted to get discouraged, give up on a dream, give up on a relationship, give up on a project, you have to remind yourself, I was not created to give up. I was not created to quit. I was created to finish. Uh-huh. You got to shake off the discouragement. Yeah, just shake it off. You know, like a dog shakes off water. Just shake off that discouragement. Shake off the self-pity. Shake off what somebody said. If you will keep moving forward in faith, honoring God, you will come into a strength that you didn't have before. A force pushing you forward. That's finishing grace. Ah, so the force. So finishing grace is the force. Ah, uh, <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, so you need to be a Jedi and, you know, tap into the force of finishing grace. Uh-huh. That's God breathing in your direction, helping you to become who he created you to be. And this grace is available, but you have to tap into it. It's not going to do us any good. Yeah, see, it's out there. That The force is out there, but you, you, learned, you must need learn to tap into the force. Right. If we sit around in self-pity, thinking about how difficult it is, what didn't work out. Well, Joel, my college professor, he's so hard, I'll never pass his course. No, you have the grace to finish. Quit talking defeat. <laughs> Quit talking defeat about a college course? Really? I mean, they're, what, 10, 12 weeks long? I mean, I, I don't know anybody who's, I'm never going to make it. I can't make it through this course. It's, dude, I can't. Feet and start talking victory. I can do all things through Christ. I am full of wisdom, talent, creativity. I will pass this course. When you do that, finishing grace will help you do what you could not do on your own. Right, because apparently, you know, it takes finishing grace in order to, you know, like, go to school, listen to lectures, read the homework assignments, write the papers, and turn them in, and then take the test. I, yeah, you couldn't possibly do that with any natural ability that God's given you at all. No, you need finishing grace to be able to pull that feet off. Yeah. Even in simple things. I mean, how do the pagans get straight A's? I, they don't even tap into finishing grace. And I know lots of pagans who had like 4.0s in college, you know? You start cleaning your house. Five minutes later, I don't feel like doing this. I- <laughs> you can't clean your house. You need finishing grace to like, you know, dust the, the shelves and vacuum the floor. Really? 
How, how do the pagans pull it off? I am so tired. This is so boring. No, turn it around. I am strong in the Lord. I am full of energy. I am healthy. This is no match for me. <laughs> I mean, this theology is just stupid. If you'll tap into this finishing grace, you'll vacuum your house like you're on a mission from God. <laughs> Why on earth do people think this is Christianity? Vacuuming up dirt, coins, socks, children, anything that gets in your way. Maybe you're tempted to give up on a dream. Things haven't turned out the way you planned. It was going fine at first. But then you had some obstacles and you think, hey, man, it just wasn't meant to be. Here's what I've learned. The enemy doesn't try to stop you from starting. Yeah, the enemy, he's going to let you start, you know, cleaning the house. And then as soon as you start cleaning the house, Satan's going to get you. (laughs) I'm going to keep you from cleaning the house. (laughs) Yeah, the devil, he, he wants there to be mass. Uh, and dirt and filth and homes all over the world. He's seen a lot of people start. That doesn't bother him. But when you have a made-up mind, you keep pushing forward, doing the right thing, taking new ground. When he sees you getting closer, he'll work overtime to try to keep you from finishing. When you have setbacks, disappointments, people come against you, a negative medical report, don't get discouraged. That's a sign that you're moving toward your finish line. He was fine when you got started. He was fine when you... Yeah, a negative medical report definitely could mean you're heading towards the finish line. <laughs> yeah, like dead, you know, that, that could mean that. You were way back, no big deal. But when you began to make progress, that got his attention. That's when he threw some obstacles, some challenges. Where you confused him is he thought you would give up. After the first few difficulties, he thought you would get discouraged when that friend turned on you, when you lost that client, when your child got in trouble. But instead, you kept moving. I mean, this is a theology of victimhood, but I mean, you could be victimized by demons trying to keep you from cleaning your house. I mean, who knew? You know, Lord, thanking God that he's in control, thanking him that he's fighting your battles, thanking him that no weapon formed against you will prosper. What we. So when you start cleaning the house and uh, and you feel like the devil's decided to come in and attack you because he sees that you've made a clean spot and you feel the temptations of the devil to keep you from cleaning your house, you start declaring affirmations and you say, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Oh, man, I, I can't go on anymore. I mean, I actually was hoping to get to the part where he mentioned Joseph, but I mean, it's so ridiculously silly on its face. It's I can't go on. I mean, we've got we've got other weird things to cover here on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to see the rest of it, you know, you can find it over at dot com. Okay, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard. On this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a little quick uh, Mark Driscoll update and then we'll get to the Lisa Bevere update. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. 
if you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book. Every day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out, I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you could be casual at work. And they's always having that 25-cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole everyday is Friday thing and have made some not-so-nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, But Saturday is so much better. With everyday being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy! for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio.
warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with Joel Osteen. But you still might like the Shiny Teeth song. Just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, moving along, I'm not going to play our Driscoll update music, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to play for you audio from this Sunday's uh, uh, one of the Sunday uh, church services at Mars Hill, at one of the Mars Hill locations in Seattle. The person we're going to be listening to is a member of the Elders of Mars Hill. His name is A.J. Hamilton, and he is going to be making the announcement regarding Mark Driscoll's resignation. And in the midst of that announcement is a very important little bit of information that I don't think has really too, made the rounds too much, but needs to be highlighted. And that information is that Mark Driscoll, you remember the investigation that the elders were conducting regarding the sinful behavior brought up by the former elders and pastors of Mars Hill? Well, this A.J. Hamilton, this elder, reveals that that investigation found a persistent pattern of sin and that their intention was to rebuke and discipline Mark Driscoll. So let me go ahead and play for you what A.J. Hamilton said so that you can hear it, and then you know we'll kind of comment on it, and then we'll go to our Lisa Bevere update. So without any further ado, here's uh, A.J. Hamilton, one of the elders of uh, Mars Hill, talking about Driscoll's re- resignation to the people of Mars Hill. Here we go. I want to start today by acknowledging and, and maybe informing some of you for the first time that on Tuesday... October 14th, Pastor Mark Driscoll submitted his resignation as an elder and lead pastor of Marshall Church to our, our Board of Overseers, and they, they accepted that resignation. Uh, I know, as many of you, uh, we share a deep appreciation for Pastor Mark and his ministry, the way that he has opened the Word of God and preached to us year after year after year. And uh, we're very grateful to him for the words of truth and love that he has spoken to us. And I'm thankful, too, for those of you that have joined Marsville in this season of turmoil. And you've come into uh, the house of God, uh, one of the, the many churches that God loves. And, and this one's in turmoil, and you have, you've given, you've served, and you've loved, and, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. And so the statement that I'm going to read to you comes from the Board of Overseers and the Board of Elders. The investigation... The formal charges against Mark Driscoll revealed patterns of persistent sin in three areas previously disclosed. First Timothy 5.20 requires an elder to be rebuked for persistent sin. Our intention was to do this while providing a plan for restoration to leadership. We, in agreement with the Board of Overseers, are grieved that any process like this was canceled by Mark's resignation. Okay. That's the important part. 
So what happened is is that they their intention was to discipline Driscoll. They the the investigation revealed a persistent pattern of sin, specifically pertaining to domineering and other things like that. And they were going to publicly rebuke Driscoll, discipline him, and come up with a plan for his restoration. But all of that was canceled by Driscoll. In other words, A.J. Hamilton is basically saying Driscoll was completely aware of this. And by resigning prior to it, he ended up canceling the whole thing. And so the idea is, is that Driscoll, by his behavior, is demonstrating that he would prefer to move on find someplace else, something else to do, than to be rebuked and disciplined and then ultimately restored um, for his persistent pattern of sin. And as I covered earlier in the week, uh, who is it that he's gone to for solace and restoration and all that kind of stuff? Robert Morris, the Word of Faith heretic from Gateway Church down in Texas. Absolutely fascinating and, well, awful all at the same time. Moving along. That's right, time for a Lisa Bevere update. I am a woman, hear me roll, in numbers too big to ignore. And I know too much to go back and pretend. Cause I've That's right. Helen Reddy's I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. That's our uh, Lisa Bevere update music. Now, uh, if you don't watch the um, the Life Today television program, which unfortunately I do, uh, and the reason I do is because it's all part of the research we do here at Fighting for the Faith and putting together the program for you. Um, Lisa Bevere is uh, one of the gals, not just the only one, but uh, one of the gals who has been sitting in for um, the absent... Uh, Beth Moore. Normally, Wednesdays on the Life Today program includes teaching from Beth Moore. She's the standard teacher there. But the uh, Wednesday programs of late have featured Christine Kane, and uh, this past week have all, it also featured Lisa Bevere. Now, what's fascinating here is that Lisa Bevere takes the uh, occasion uh, in filling um, <laughs> Beth Moore's pulpit. Um, is that the right way to talk about it? Um, and uh, and so she's going to explain to us what the sin of Sodom was. And what she's saying is, in fact, a half-truth. And oftentimes a half-truth is a whole lie. So you're going to need an open Bible. But uh, let's take a listen to what Lisa Bevere does with this text so we can figure out uh, you know, how to unpack this and, and deal with it. Here we go. And because I'm so desperate to see the church be all that she can be. I hate it when people label the church as mean and ugly and judgmental. And I know that it's James and Betty's passion 
to see the church be a light to the lost, to the hurt, to the starving, to the captive. And yet so many people in the world think the church is just the people that are against things. During the break, I, I asked a couple people, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? And um, you here told me sodomy. You here told me it was perversion. And, you know, most people do think that is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we think, oh, it's homosexuality. That's what happens. But, you know, can I read to you out of the Bible? Now, notice what she said. That, well, that's people think it's homosexuality. But let me read to you out of the Bible. Now, by the way, I'm going to read to you out of the Bible, too. She's going to take them to a passage in the Old Testament, okay, which does describe, in part, the sin of Sodom. But there's more data. So if you were to talk about what is the sin of Sodom, it is not enough to just quote the passage that she's quoting. And she's quoting this against people who would mistakenly think that the sin of Sodom had something to do with homosexuality. That's the problem. This isn't a complete teaching. It's a half-truth. Let's listen in. Where it says in Ezekiel 16, verse 49, what the sin of Sodom was. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. But they did not aid the poor and the needy. We are a nation of prosperous eat. We are a nation with excess of food. We are a nation where people are always finding ways to entertain themselves. I don't want to end up this way. You say, but but I thought there was homosexuality. Anytime we think it's just about us, we will do things that gratify us. They just lived for gratification. Because when we have a culture that is self-focused, that is all they do. All right. Now, again, it's how she taught it that's rather fascinating. And what's the issue? Well, the issue is is that it's not the whole truth. It's not an either-or. Okay, And we're going to take a look at the book of Jude. Jude who also writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a picture of what's going on with Sodom. So I'm going to start at verse 1. So we're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context. Here's what it says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago who were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Here it is. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise 
indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yeah, there it is. Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality and they pursued unnatural desire. Now, what does this do then with the passage she quoted in Ezekiel? Answer, the two work to give, together to give us a full picture. To somehow say, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, the sin of Sodom has nothing to do with homosexuality. You're wrong if you call it sodomy. No, 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 no. You see, it's the way she taught it. The reality is, is that you don't pit passages against each other. And in order to understand what's going on regarding anything in the Bible, you have to look at all the data. The data here is clear that, yes, they were people who were prosperous and didn't care for the poor. That's absolutely true. But it is also absolutely true that they serve as an example of God's punishment of eternal fire because, as Jude says in verse 7, because they indulged in sexual immorality and they pursued unnatural desire. That's called same-sex attraction, same-sex sexual sins. That's what the scripture says. So when somebody comes along on a popular, well, television program like James Robison's and engages in trying to deconstruct what the Bible says by only focusing on half of what it says, and not all of what it says, and to, you know, in order under the kind of the general context of I'm sick and tired of people saying that the church is judgmental, and how is the church judgmental? Well, let's take a look at sodomy or the, the the Sodom and Gomorrah. What were they guilty of? I thought it was about homosexuality. No, it's them. About, it's not them about them being rich and prosperous and not caring for the poor. Well, it's that and. And Scripture makes it clear that what's the reason why they were punished? Because they they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That's what Scripture says. It's not either or. It's all of that. All of that. And you could even say that maybe you can make an argument from the Ezekiel text that it's that prosperity and and indulgence that you know ended up heading in this direction where ultimately they ended up in the ditch of homosexuality and stuff like that. And yeah, I you know the, the two kind of work together. Maybe they're on a continuum, but it's not an either or. And beware of the person who tries to correct you regarding what the sin of Sodom is, but does so in a way that undermines other biblical texts, clear biblical texts as to what their sin was about. Yeah, the Bible doesn't give us only one part of that picture. It gives us a broader picture. And it also absolutely includes same-sex sexual sins and attraction. That's what the Scripture says. All right, we're up on our second break. A little bit earlier today, but uh, stay tuned. We are going to end up the week with a couple of uh, good sermons by uh, Pastor Mark Bestuel. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey! Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Number two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. We're going to end the week off with a couple of good sermons. One, one of them is going to be uh, sound a little odd. What I mean by that is that it's a sermon that remembers the gospel writer Matthew. Yeah. Can you do that? Yeah. It, yeah. It's, there's a church here in... I'll let Pastor Bestial explain it, but let's do this right. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermons good ones uh, come to us via calvary lutheran church in elgin illinois pastor mark bestial presiding now we're going to be listening to two sermons the first sermon is about saint matthew now don't get freaked out by the name saint it was on the day when we recognize historically matthew the writer of, of the gospel of matthew and that, by the way, calling him a saint doesn't mean that you're not a saint. But uh, we're going to be listening to a sermon. The text is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, which I'll read here in a second. And then uh, the second sermon is on the authority of Jesus. And that's from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 through 32, which I will read before we get to those sermons. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And uh, let me read to you the text that forms the basis of our first sermon from Pastor Bestial. 
the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, which reads, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners." This is the text that forms the basis of our first sermon. Here is Pastor Bestule. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, three months ago we reintroduced here at Calvary the Lutheran Church's rich tradition of remembering the saints gone before us. Perhaps you'll recall we commemorated Saints Peter and Paul. We won't really continue this on Sundays for a long time because the festivals recalling these early Christians ought to be observed during the week as part of the church's daily calendar, in your daily devotions. Learning from God's grace in those early Christians' lives about God's grace in our lives. In fact, no remembrance of a Christian ought really rival the blessed truth that each Sunday's divine service is the greatest and highest festival of the year. But while we learn to appreciate, if you will, and and while we make use of the minor festivals, we'll continue to mention them on Sundays, and especially fitting is it today, in a year in which the church's gospel readings have taken us through the gospel of Matthew, it's a nice coincidence that September 21st on the church calendar, the festival of St. Matthew, that the 21st falls on a Sunday, giving us great opportunity not to overshadow the greater feast of the Lord's Day, but on this Lord's Day to consider who is his chosen gospel writer and how we can learn from Jesus' calling of Matthew about what Jesus has planned for each of us. In Matthew's own words, we hear of Jesus' calling of him. What a a joyous occasion it must have been for Matthew to pen these words. Thinking back some years later to that day on which Jesus picked him of all sinners, picked him to be a disciple. You should have no less joy in your day of baptism. Of all sinners, you were chosen by Jesus to be his disciple. Yes, you ought to remember that day and its gift fondly and often, considering how it shapes your identity when living in it among family, friends, and the world. In fact, we get a sense of that from Matthew, don't we? For Matthew hints at his new identity when he writes, Jesus saw a man called Matthew. That may sound like nothing of significance, but Mark and Luke also record this event, and they point out that Jesus came to a man named Levi. It would seem that the tax collector, in his own record, rejoiced in being called to an identity to which he had not been originally named. Just as Simon was called to be Peter and Saul was called to be Paul, so in Matthew's own gospel he exchanges the named identity of Levi with the called identity of Matthew, given him as a disciple of Christ. And why shouldn't he rejoice in such things? Consider what it meant to be a tax collector. We sometimes forget that. 
Why did they have such a horrible reputation that they were classified with other untouchables as sinners? Tax collectors were despised because they were dishonest. They often taxed more than what was properly owed Caesar because they'd get kickbacks. To make matters worse, they were Jews taxing other Jews while working for the Romans. In short, they were in league with the oppressors. And no matter how immoral and sinful, it was lucrative. Chief of sinners, they were considered. Their entire lives were centered around and dedicated to the idolatry of money, the stealing of others' possessions, and nothing short of unity with the enemy. Our sin-filled ways aren't so different, are they? Before we are called to faith, we are in league with the oppressor. Thanks be to God that Jesus calls us to be his disciples. His Holy Spirit having called us by the gospel and holy baptism. And in that baptism, we are called not just to a name change, but to an identity change in which we daily wrestle against that former identity, that old Adam. Jesus didn't say to Levi, take the name Matthew, but keep on in your life of sin. And Jesus didn't call out, follow yourself. But rather, he said, follow me. That identity change is our daily struggle, isn't it? We may no longer be in league with the oppressor, but we still harm and cheat and offend our own countrymen, our own brothers and sisters in Christ. And the enemy who once possessed us still oppresses us and is all too willing to help us convince ourselves that it's too lucrative a life to give up. And so what a daily struggle is ours. If you are a gossip, you are called to explain everything in the kindest way. If you were an adulterer or fornicator, you are called to wrestle your old Adam into chaste thinking and speaking and living. A drunkard, called to trust God more than your alcohol. A lazy glutton, called to vocational living. Greedy, called to charity. Envious, called to rejoice at your neighbor's game. As the small catechism teaches that baptism and the new identity given therein, baptism indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Notice how that wrestling occurs according to the small catechism? By daily contrition and repentance. Such wrestling is not something you can achieve by your own strength. You need to be called to repentance. You need to be forgiven, strengthened. And so what joy Jesus continues to call. He is constantly calling you to live in your baptism. Calling you to repentance. Calling out to you in forgiveness. How cyclical and rhythmic is that pattern of our baptismal lives. Those whom He has called, Christ teaches, and He feeds, and He sends out into our daily lives where we wrestle against and far too often fall again into all sorts of habits of our old identity. 
He calls us to repentance again. And He gathers us again that He might preach again unto us repentance and forgiveness. And having led us to repentance, Christ forgives and feeds us again and leads us back out into daily life again. That's the rhythm of the Christian's life. And without depending on such rhythm, you will almost assuredly perish. And your new name will only mask old Adam's victory. And so what joy for Matthew to be called into this identity and rhythm. No matter what he had to leave behind, even the the wealth of his greed, it all paled in comparison to what lay ahead. Even what immediately lay ahead. For where, where do we immediately find Matthew? At table with Jesus. At table with his fellow disciples gathered with other tax collectors and sinners at the feet of and in the presence of Christ, hearing the Master speak, even dining with Him. Here is the picture Matthew wants you to know of, Christ's church. It is, above all, the table gathering of the penitent, of those who desire Christ's mercy, of those who hunger and thirst for His teaching and for His food, those who know the world scorns them, and deservedly so, for their sin is great, but who also know that Christ can remove from them their sin. This point cannot be overemphasized, and it must not be overlooked. The picture of the church is not the picture of those who, by the world's standards, deserve to be with Jesus. In the world's eyes, the church is a pit of unrighteousness. There are no saints here. If by saints one speaks of earned righteousness or holy living, there's no merit by which Jesus has said unto the church, allow me to extend you an invitation, O worthy guest, which I pray you will accept. Or again, Jesus doesn't say, Now it's safe for me to eat and dine with you, for you are now most righteous and most worthy. Rather, Matthew wants you to look at this church, these people at Jesus' feet, these people dining with God Most High, and to say, they're only sinners. Merely spiritual beggars. The self-righteous are appalled by such truths. To them, the church is supposed to be glorious. It must be free of sin. It must be squeaky clean. It must come to Christ in its own righteousness. It must have no mistakes, no flaws, no imperfections. And so in dismay, these theologians of glory ask, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the answer is simple. If he did not, they could never come to Him. If Jesus came for the righteous, He would have to eat alone. If He brought healing for the healthy, He would find no patient who matched the symptoms. Jesus had to come for sinners because only sinners can be found. And Jesus had to come to sinners for sinners cannot Come to Him. Christ's death is in vain. 
His gifts are in vain. His gospel is in vain if he is not willing to associate with sinners. And yet it is his very gospel, his very gifts, his very death that not only show his willingness to associate with sinners, but actually give, convey, and are his dealing with sinners. Friends, if you want to see Jesus coming for sinners, look to the cross. If you want to learn of Jesus interacting with sinners, look to the recorded gospel. If you want to receive Jesus serving sinners, look to the word and sacrament that he freely gives. Over the last month or so, we've been given a real heavy dose in Matthew's gospel of the theology of glory, that theology that says you can please God to save yourself, versus the theology of the cross. The theology that says you are saved by the blood of Jesus who freely forgives sin. That proclamation has been loud and clear in the Gospel of Matthew, but now in the person of Matthew, we see the theology of the cross at work even against the desires of those theologians of glory. We see what it means to be called to repent and turn from your former sins. We see what it means to be forgiven so freely and thoroughly that the Holy God deigns to dwell and eat with sinners, no matter how the world despises Him for so doing. Or as Jesus in our text summarizes this great divide between the uh, the theology of glory and the theology of the cross, He says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. These are important words. Jesus is quoting Hosea's prophecy where the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The sacrifice God no longer wants is the very burnt offering sacrifice He once put into place. Why is this so? Well, understand that the burnt offering was an Old Testament rite by which the worshiper would burn a sacrifice upon an altar as a sign that he had dedicated himself to God. It was a sacrifice which also showed Israel God's acceptance of her as his people. In other words, the burnt offering sacrifice was one that foreshadowed the one offering that would actually make God's people acceptable in his sight. It foreshadowed Christ's sacrifice, in which he dedicated himself to God's will and stood as the substitute in place of us sinners who can't dedicate ourselves to God. The book of Hebrews records it this way. It says, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. You see, friends, Christ became flesh for one purpose, to become the sacrifice. As the writer to the Hebrews explains, he does away with the first, with the Old Testament sacrifices according to the law. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, his offering, his sacrifice, according to the gospel. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees, he tells you, we who supposedly know everything there is to know about God and his law, 
He tells the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's as if he says, ponder this, that your hope to justify yourself by the law is in vain. God is not pleased by the supposed healthy. He is not impressed by the supposed righteous because, as we heard last week, lex semper accuses. The law always accuses you and shows you your sin. Rather, in Christ's perfect sacrifice, the sinner is redeemed because, as the Scriptures say, he who knew no sin became sin, became the sacrifice for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Friends, in Christ is the end and fulfillment of the justifying sacrifice. In Christ is the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness that God desired to freely give to sinners such as Matthew. Has anything changed in 2,000 years? Is this not still the picture and truth of Christ's church? This Jesus who deigned to dwell with, teach, and eat with Matthew, will the same Jesus not now continue to dwell with us sinners in sacramental mysteries? He does not look for you to be perfectly healthy. He does not wait for you to be holy and righteous. Otherwise, he could never interact with you. Matthew would be forever Levi. He'd be forever a tax collector. And he'd be forever damned to hell. If Jesus did not choose the sinner, if Jesus was unwilling to associate with sinners, Levi could never claim the name Matthew, and you could never claim the name Christian. And yet, here you are, having been called to repentance, having been forgiven, again taking part in the sacramental mystery of divine dwelling and feasting with Christ. So rejoice, dear Christian, and follow the Jesus who came to call sinners unto eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Sermon number two. Sermon number two is uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. I think he's only preaching through uh, 23 through 27, so let me read that. Here's the text. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, "Uh, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here is Pastor Bestial and his second sermon for today on this text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text, when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? 
Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, praise be to Christ in whom we see the image of the Father shown. Those are the words we just sang. And yet the Pharisees know not where Jesus gets his authority. How can this be? How can it be that the teachers of Israel, those physically descended from Abraham's line, those who know the Scriptures better than anyone, how can it be that they question Jesus' authority, and yet we, admittedly, probably not nearly as well versed in the intricacies of the Scriptures, we can sing, praise be to Christ in whom we see God. That's really what's at issue in our text, isn't it? It's not so much a question of authority, but a question of identity. Why can the chief priests and elders not rightly identify Jesus? Consider the context, and perhaps you'll better appreciate this dialogue between Jesus and his opponents. Other than our brief hiatus last week to consider Jesus' calling of St. Matthew, this year's Gospel reading has now taken us through most of Matthew's Gospel. We're into the 21st of Matthew's 28, uh, 28 chapters, and so you know that we've got to be nearing the end. In fact, the verses before this in Matthew's Gospel are the accounts of Palm Sunday and of Jesus clearing the temple of the money changers. And so we're in Holy Week at the time of this back and forth. And the religious leaders are bewildered by this Jesus and his teaching, and they're threatened by his popularity, and so they want to debate and discredit him. Keep in mind the rules of Jewish debate, that if one party challenged another, the other had the right to throw out a question to the first, and if the first party could answer that question, then that party proved himself worthy of an answer to his original inquiry. However, if he couldn't answer, the second party need not answer the original challenge. This is why the exchange happens the way it does. But the process of the debate isn't the point of the account. Jesus isn't trying to dodge their question, nor is he simply showing himself to be a skilled debater. None of that proves that he's God. And it's not why the Holy Spirit desires this conversation to be included in Holy Writ for the benefit of you and for me. To understand what's at the heart of the matter, we must consider Jesus' question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Again, one could immediately jump to the conclusion Jesus' opponents do. He's trapped us into silence. We can't answer. But is that really Jesus' point during Holy Week? Is his point really to say, you know, I've got the cross on my mind. Don't bother me right now. I don't think it is. Rather, Jesus' question is all about asking the chief priests, and you, by the way, whether it can be believed that God would work through mankind in the persons of the prophets, because if God is willing to act through sinful men called prophets, then it's not difficult to see that God would also willing to become man in the person of Jesus. There is his authority. God has become man. 
The death of Jesus means nothing if God is not willing to even work through men, let alone become a man. Jesus has no authority to die for your sins if God is not willing to become man, to associate with man. We heard similar remarks last week. Remember, why is Jesus willing to associate with sinners? But today the question is, is God really willing to work in the realm of humanity? To attach himself to the tangible things of man? That's a question the scribes can't handle. And interestingly, it's a question that still sends shockwaves through the circles of American Christianity. Is God really willing to work among men in the divine service? And so it silences sinners into being totally confused and confounded by the things of God. Totally confused by the divine service of God for His people. It is very easy to say that a man named Jesus was sent from God to die on a cross for our sins. But that's not the gospel. Jesus is no mere man sent with the authority of God to die on a cross. Your salvation depends on this Jesus being the God-man, true God, begotten of the Father from all eternity, true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, we confess. To die for my sins, we confess. And that can't happen if God is unwilling to work in flesh and blood. Moreover, the suffering and death of Jesus benefits us in no way if we will not believe that God is still willing to work in and benefit you through flesh and blood. And that's why Jesus' question to the chief priests is still very valid for American Christianity today. How many church bodies teach the poor souls in their pews not to hold fast, for example, to the promises of baptism? Then the question stands, was John's baptism of God or was it of men? Clearly, the answer is supposed to be that it was from God. But if John's baptism is from God, then how much more so is the baptism that Jesus gives? And yet the enthusiasts of our day direct poor sinners not to God at work in the font, but to the supposed spirit-led things of an altar call. Not to life-giving waters, but to decisions for Jesus. Not to waters of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, but to making a fresh start for oneself and dedicating oneself to living a sinless life. If the chief priests are silenced by Jesus' question, should not also the teaching among so many today that that says that Jesus' baptism is of man and not of God? And if one cannot hold to the divine origins of baptism, certainly one is not going to hold to the divine nature of the Holy Supper. And if one is going to reject the possibility of the Supper, that God would give His very flesh to eat and blood to drink to receive the divine benefits of the cross, then of what good is it that God was willing to become flesh to go to the cross in the first place? You see what it really comes down to? What the chief priest stumbled over is the incarnation of the Christ. That God would become man, attach his authority to man. This is why it would have done no good for Christ to explain to the chief priests by what authority he did these things. 
If they couldn't even see God at work through a messenger prophet, then they certainly won't see God at work attaching himself to the flesh. The incarnation of Jesus. And he was made man, we say in the Creed. It is fundamental to the Christian faith. Not only in the idea of the God-man dying on the cross, but also in the idea of the God-man benefiting you today in very tangible ways. For he did not only take on humanity, but he was made man. He became man. This is my body. This is my blood. Thus, what the chief priests of Jesus' day and the skeptics of our day, what they really stumble over, over that you may cheerfully step. The incarnation is not a stumbling block. It is the gospel. And in the wonder of God's incarnation and its benefits, you may rejoice. You may lay eyes upon the incarnate God upon the cross and comfort yourself. There is my God in the flesh. There he hangs with all authority to atone for sins. Satan can accuse me no longer, for there in the flesh is God, with all authority over sin, death, and the power of the devil. And what of when the child is brought to holy baptism? Or what of when holy absolution is declared, as it was this morning? Do you doubt that such gifts are of any benefit to you? then you must teach yourself to say the baptism of the sinner John was of God. Therefore, why ought I doubt that the baptism poured over my head or the absolution spoken to me is of God? And when the skeptics say of the Holy Supper, well, that saying, this is my body, this is my blood, that is a hard saying. How can it be? You may joyfully say, the incarnate God promised as much. This is my body. This is my blood. With the same authority that he had to atone for sins, Jesus Christ gives his very same once cross-bearing flesh and blood to apply such forgiveness. So that the Apostle John says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, present tense. It's achieving such benefit here and now in this hour. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The wonder and amazement and beauty of the gospel is not that God would rain down his authority to give sins from on high, but that he would personally earn it in the flesh, bring and deliver it to you in the flesh. That's what the divine service is all about. It's about your God being here now in the flesh to forgive, teach, and feed sinners. Recall last week I asked, why would Jesus come to sinners? Because sinners could never come to Him. Well, we can expand on that today. Why would God come to sinners and dwell with sinners in the flesh? Because sinners can never come to Him or dwell with Him in the Spirit. To show just how much the ongoing and eternal significance of the Christ incarnation, not just a one-time incarnation, but for all-time incarnation, to show how much of a line in the sand that is between God's gospel and all false gospels that mimic it, Jesus asks a follow-up question of the chief priests. 
not in our text, but I want to read it. Uh, I want to read it to you for us to have a full, a fuller understanding of Jesus' purpose in this exchange. He says in the verses immediately following our text, he says, "A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, "Son, go and work in the vineyard today." The son answered, "I will not." But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And the man went to the other son and said the same. And that son answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now, friends, usually when we hear that little parable, we hear it out of context. We hear it without considering our text's exchange about John's authority and Jesus' authority. And so we convince ourselves that Jesus is merely teaching a moral lesson about how to behave and work for your father. That's not it at all. Instead, he explains when he says in the following verses, he says, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. And even when you saw it, that is, the way of righteousness embodied in Jesus, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. You see, Jesus' parable isn't about which son did the work of his father. Not all the details have to be exact when you're talking about parables. It's about which sinner heeded the will of the father. And what is the will of the father? It's to send his son in the flesh. Which son received the truth of the gospel of Christ? Is it the one, the religious leaders, who first said yes I await Messiah to come, and then did not receive him when he appeared in the flesh? Or is it the sinner who said, I will not await the Messiah to come? But when Messiah had come in the flesh, the sinner repented and believed the gospel. And again, is it the one who in being catechized and taught the faith says, I believe? but when given access to the table, refuses to come? Or is it the one who may at first have said, this gospel is of no benefit to me, but having been taught the faith and shown Messiah in the sacrament, repents and partakes of the gospel? Which is the will of the Father? You know the answer. And you know that the Messiah who once came in the flesh to die for the sins of the world has also promised to come in the same body and blood each and every time he gathers his church at his altar. That is the promise of the incarnate Christ. A promise that carries the authority and forgiveness of God Most High. So rejoice in it. And receive the Messiah who comes again this very hour to serve you. Just as he has promised. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text, Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at 
Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>